Wheeling Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Welcome to episode 262. Today we have a special guest, Madison Johnston, who discusses flying ultralights with a pilot certificate better known as Part 103. And uh, joining us today also is Russ Rosleski. Russ, welcome to the show again. Thanks, Carl. Great to be on. We're doing this a little bit early in the morning for me here in Oklahoma, but that's all right. I'm excited to talk about ultralights. Oh, yeah, this is exciting. And also, Madison, welcome to the show. We we know that uh, you are in a different time zone, actually, in Afghanistan right now. What time is it there, by the way? It is about... Uh, 5.35 in the morning here, or in the evening here. It's my morning because I work nights. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really excited to, to get started and talk about ultralights. I mean, I'm in uh, part 103 flying and an exciting adventure in flying that's actually very affordable, and I actually really love that. Before we get started, though, if you're listening right now and you really like the content, uh, please visit our Patreon account. Go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash patron and go check that out. Uh, all the money goes towards uh, producing this show, but every dollar that's given, we actually put a dollar towards giving away a scholarships guide. There's over $120 million in scholarships for aviation aerospace there, so go check that out. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the cruise flight. And uh, first, let's start off here, uh, Madison, because I've one of the things I'd have to say I, I don't know a lot about this uh, this whole Part 103 type of flying. So right off the bat, let's uh, get people to understand that, and then we'll talk a little bit about why it's so much fun. So Part 103 is uh, ultralight flying. The aircraft has to weigh 250 pounds dry, so less fuel and oil. Uh, it can't carry more than five gallons of fuel, uh, and uh, it has to cruise at 55 knots. Um, and it's up to the pilot and the builder to really uh, make sure that the aircraft follows that. Uh, the designers do their best to design aircraft that follow those rules and fly at those speeds. Um, but it, it, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's uh, it's up to the the pilot to make sure that all that is followed. And these aircraft, uh, and you know, I've seen these over at like Sun and Fun and a lot of different air shows and the light sport air shows, that type of thing. Usually you see ultralights there. And uh, what's really, it's interesting because it looks, a lot of them look like airplanes. They're kind of beefy. Other ones aren't, there's not much to them. It's just a wing and you and the bugs and the teeth in the air. One of the common questions that I get is, uh, you know, hey, is that really safe to fly? And, and so let's let's get that off the bat right away. What do you think? I mean, I, I know, Madison, uh, when you get that question, I'm sure you do often, you know, what do you tell people when they ask, is it safe to fly? They're as safe to fly as you make them. Uh, it Just like it, your certified aircraft, you've got to do your inspections, you have to do your walk-arounds. Um, the, the difference is that as a Part 103 pilot, I'm the one doing all the maintenance, uh, and I have to make sure that everything is good to go on that. So 
I mean, it, it's as safe as I can make it. Um, and I wouldn't fly it if I didn't feel confident in getting up in the air with it. So, so under the 103 rules, um, you actually, so you, you, do you, I guess, do most people buy or do they build these? I, well, I've bought most of mine, um, but I am in the process of building a, uh, Minimax 1650 Eros. Uh, I bought the plans while I've been out here in Afghanistan and uh, slowly accumulated supplies at my house to build when I get back in February. Um, but I, I've i bought all of the aircraft that, that I currently own. Uh, between myself and my hangar buddy, we have nine... Uh, not including the Aeros that I'm building and the uh, two experimental aircraft that I also have uh, that I'm constructing. So. so you're really involved. I know you're a mechanic, right? Um, yeah. And we've talked about that before in another show, but uh, you're a, a helicopter mechanic uh, working as a contractor in Afghanistan, and you're into ultralight. So I guess I'm sure someone's going to ask this, is how in the world are you able to do that and also be overseas at the same time? Uh, <laughs> I, um, just make time for it really. <laughs> uh, my, I have a very understanding wife who, uh, allows me to collect aircraft and aircraft parts and, uh, build things in my spare time. And I have a hangar buddy that I share, uh, multiple hangers with. And whenever I'm home or have time to, I just go out to the hangers and, tinker and go fly whenever i can well that's awesome uh, you know that's the biggest thing is having someone who's uh, uh you know actually understanding of your hobby which is quite important that's for sure um i know uh russ and i were into flying quite a bit and and we do have to kind of explain to our spouses and about why we're getting up so early to talk about airplanes just because of our passion for them that's for sure uh, but uh <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of the things I think that's really important to understand is that uh, a lot of us want to get into flying, and uh, we always talk about the cost. And this is just such a, a great way to defray those costs and get up in the air. So kind of, if you could give us a little color on that as far as you, you say buying, uh, you're going to save money on buying and also maintaining it. Let's start with buying. What, what are the price ranges on these? So I have never paid more than $10,000 for any of my aircraft. Uh, I, I bought my, my Minimax, the 1600 that I was talking, uh, mentioned to Russ before we started, I bought that one for $800, uh, (laughs) in flying condition. I did go over it. I, I went through the engine. It has a little, uh, 503 Rotax on it with 50 horsepower. So I, I opened that up and, and made sure everything was good to go. I went through and opened up the fabric on the wings and and looked down inside the fuselage to make sure all the wood was okay. I had one patch that I had to make on a wing. It took me about an hour uh, cutting the fabric, gluing it on, heating it up, and painting it. Uh, And then it was ready to fly. Um, Did spend about two days tuning the engine uh, because it was stored at a different altitude, so it was, it was uh, set up to fly differently uh, than my home field. Uh, so I had to tweak with tweak that, and I played with the propeller and just got it 
good to go and safe and that I, I had it ready to fly within a week of purchasing it. Um, and you can pick up a half Volkswagen engine built, uh, fully ready to install firewall forward with a prop hub for $4,000 for an 80 horsepower engine, which is more than enough to get you up in the air with these small light aircraft. Uh, it's, it's really super affordable. Uh, it's, it's a little bit less affordable if you don't have the time to build and, and work on them, but uh, it's it's super easy and super affordable for those that can't really afford something that's thirty thousand dollars plus an AMP and an IA and annuals and it it all runs on pump gas too. Uh, there are two strokes and four strokes, so you can run it on ninety one octane, ninety three octane premixed. It's uh, super affordable to do. And I bet the uh, the fuel burn is not too high either. Then, huh? Oh no, uh, <laughs> I I can get about a, a two gallon an hour fuel burn at uh, basically running that thing a full throttle. Um, it's so with a five gallon tank, you got about two and a half hours of flight with reserves. So. You talk about maintenance. Uh, the purchase price of that was, I think, less than my last annual. You know, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. So the maintenance side, though, most of this you can you do yourself, correct? Yes. How about people yeah, that don't I, have time for that? Do you, can you hire someone to do that for you, or is that that not legal? Or? Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, you can you can have anybody. Uh, the, there's the Part One Hundred Three regulations are really a gray area that we like to keep a gray area. Um, <laughs> everyone, everyone who ha owns one can do their own work. If you don't have time, you can pay somebody else to do it. Um, you can get a, someone with their, um, the, uh, mechanic certificate. So your AMP or the, the one for amateur built aircraft. Um, can't remember the name of that. Repairman certificate. Repairman certificate. That's right. Uh, so even someone with a repairman certificate can do it. Um, uh, but it, anyone can work on these. So gotcha. You know, one of the benefits to having uh, the Part 103 rule is the fact that uh, I think if people don't understand, you actually don't have to have any type of uh, pilot or maintenance certificate to go out there, work on these, and fly them. So how does Excellent. that work? Go ahead. Actually, I got a yeah, along those lines with the maintenance. If if you could answer for me too, that'd be great. Uh, what level of ability are we kind of talking about here? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm okay with with a wrench. You know, <laughs> I can do basic stuff on the car. I mean, is that is that what level we're looking at? Or I mean, but there are certainly parts of a of a certified airplane that you know I wouldn't feel qualified to to get into. Just kind of talk about that a little bit. And like Carl was asking you, training to to work on it and such. Uh, if you have, um, if you have, if you've ever worked on a motorcycle uh, with a two-stroke, uh, like a motocross bike or a dirt bike, you can you can work on these engines. Um, I would recommend that you get familiar with publications for proper repairs, um, simply because there's you're dealing with wood wood aircraft usually or. Uh, steel tube fuselage and fabric so you're going to want to know how to uh, 
patch those things or repair those things when they get damaged. Um, but if you if you have a general mechanical aptitude and you uh, have access to the proper manuals and the uh, um, the uh, procedures, you can you can do all the work yourself pretty easily. It all depends on whether or not you trust yourself to do it. I <laughs> understand. And you are the one in the airplane. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's cl- great clarification. But how about what, how about me flying it? If I'm someone that doesn't have, oh, say I just have a driver's license or I don't have any driver's license. How do I go out and fly one of these? I, uh, you, uh, you can just pick one up and fly it, uh, with your driver's license or no license. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. I would definitely recommend getting some form of instruction uh, before getting into one of these just because it's uh, a lot safer to do it that way. Um, you don't want to hurt yourself or others. So getting some sort of training is recommended. Right. And how, how do you get that training? I mean, if these are single-seat ultralights or they're two-seat ultralights? I know, I know that's kind of a little bit of a loaded question. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, but there, yeah, so how do you get training? There used to be uh, two-seat trainer ultralights before the introduction of the light sport category. Um, there are still some out there that have been loaded uh, so that you can still receive instruction. Um, I don't know about the compensation rules offhand uh, as far as that anymore. I I think it may just be, hey, here's some money for my fuel, or I'll pay for the gas, you know. But um, it, uh, you can get instruction in a Loda in a in a two seat ultralight light sport. Uh, you can get it in a GA aircraft. I would recommend finding someone who has their CFI and a in the smallest aircraft you can find, just so that you're uh, not trying to bridge the gap between a full GA aircraft like a Cessna that flies really docile and uh, isn't hard to learn uh, and, and then going to a really squirrely little tiny aircraft that weighs less than 300 pounds and uh, is home built. <laughs> right. So I guess if there, uh, there are two-seat aircraft that are very similar to these ultralights. I guess, you know, from what you said, they're no longer classified as ultralights. They'd be light sport or something like that. But there are two-seat aircraft that are are pretty similar in, in even in looks and handling, and probably most of the public would just call them generically ultralights, I imagine. That's kind of what yep. we're looking for here. Yeah, I actually, uh, so that's how I got my start. Uh, my hangar buddy and I, purchased a challenger two, uh, that was loaded and he had his, his, uh, helicopter CFI. And, uh, we'd, we'd both been introduced to fixed wing flight. And then he, he got instruction from a fixed wing CFI before getting into our aircraft. And then he and I just went flying and I learned from him, uh, not even really formal instruction, just getting me comfortable with the aircraft and and then I worked with the CFI for a ground school so that I understood the rules and uh 
then went from there. And when I felt comfortable going solo, I took the Challenger up by myself, and then I went and took my Minimax out. So that that LODA is just basically short for Letter of Deviation Authority. You would apply you apply for the FAA apply, apply through the FAA for that uh, Letter of Deviation uh, that says you are allowed to use that for instruction still. Um, cool. I'm not exactly sure on the process because we bought it with a LODA already, so. Oh, so the uh, LODA goes with the aircraft then? Is that right? I. I believe so. Uh, that was what we were informed when we took the uh, when, we, when we took over ownership of the aircraft. Oh. <laughs> so interesting. So I guess what uh, so you've talked about how you learned how to how to fly one of these. I mean, so you know, I'm a I'm an active flight instructor. I'm an experienced pilot. You know, what would training be like for for me? I mean, you may or may not be able to speak about this from direct uh, experience, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm used to you know, heavier airplanes, I guess, than than these. And so, kind of, what what would that be like for me? What would what would be some of the things I'd have to learn and maybe unlearn? Uh, well, you're going to be going a lot slower. Uh, I have a cruise of 55 knots in every one of these aircraft, and uh, so you're gonna you're gonna have to learn to. Uh, be able to let other people know where you are and that you're the slowest person on the field. Uh, we flew, we fly out of a, a rather large, uh, non-towered aircraft or airfield ourselves with one of them. And we are the slowest aircraft on the field. Uh, the skydiving operation actually gets really irritated with us when we go fly <laughs> because we'll, we'll do an extremely short pattern, uh, around this airfield. We could take off and land about probably, three times in this in the length of of our paved airstrip uh and still get around and so uh we have to make sure that everyone around us is really understanding of the fact that we are slow and that we will get out of your way if you need to get somewhere but uh, that that would be the biggest thing is just getting used to being the slowest aircraft out there and communicating that I imagine it uh, that wind and turbulence and that kind of stuff has a larger effect than on a heavier airplane. I mean, just based on the variety of airplanes I've flown, the lighter you, the lighter you get, the more you kind of get bounced around. Is that pretty accurate yeah. for an ultralight it, too? It gets a little bumpy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not not as much uh, energy to dissipate when you're you're flaring for landing either. No. Every every landing that we practice, every landing that I make in these is a power off. Uh, just because of the nature of the aircraft, uh, we've had between myself and my friend about four in-flight engine stoppages, um, due to various things. Uh, one was not understanding that if you, uh, descend too quickly, you will cool off the case too fast and you will cause your engine to seize. Uh, another was underestimating the uh, lifetime of the fuel lines that we were using and uh, thinking, oh, we've got a few hundred hours left on this before we have to check it and having one fail in flight. Um, so we just we just make sure we practice uh, being able to get down with no power. And uh, it's, it's pretty easy to once you get used to every landing being power off landing, you're just gliding in 
and uh, understanding your your energy management is really big in an ultralight as well. Uh, so it sounds like you would highly recommend that even an experienced pilot in heavier aircraft still gets training in an ultralight before going and flying it. Yeah, I, I would definitely recommend at least getting familiarization um, before before just hopping in and flying one. If you're if you're really good at uh, you know trans transitioning between aircraft, it it shouldn't be too much time before you're used to it. But uh, I would definitely recommend getting familiar with it. You talked about stoppages in flight, and I think you know having flown gliders one of the things that you realize is that you have a very short uh, distance that you need to actually get the aircraft stopped uh so i think a lot of people get nervous when they talk about you know aircraft you know engine stoppages in flight or engine failures uh how much room do you need to land this not a whole lot um i have in my minimax i have about a 2000 foot per minute climb uh, just because of the large wing area and the massive airfoil uh i can get off the ground and on the ground in uh, even the shortest grass strips that I've been able to find. Um, I think, uh, let me see if I can pull up my little, my, my manual here. I, I know that I can get off in about 300 feet and land in just about the same, but I want to see what the manufacturer says. Here. Right. And that that's actually pretty darn short, even if it was like, you know, 500 feet or whatever it, it it's amazing though to see these people it's like those those uh you know stole competitions i was just watching this weekend um you know you're, you're talking incredibly short uh distances that these folks can actually stop the aircraft uh, you know you look at even aircraft manufacturer aircraft like a mall you know there's always that demonstration where the person takes off out of the hangar and, and is up in the air right away so it's pretty amazing um but you know while, while you're looking that up um as far as the build you know for someone who's looking at this from a building standpoint uh what type of costs are involved in actually the building process not so much the the purchasing but the uh the whole soups to nuts get the kit and building the whole aircraft that really depends on um on uh, your ability to source materials for relatively cheap uh although i wouldn't recommend going as cheap as possible you can go incredibly cheap because there is no there is no faa saying hey you need to build to this standard um you you can build as cheaply as you want uh, i've seen so the minimax kits are about ten thousand um to purchase those kits and and then they have about a 400 hour build time um with the quick builds and those are all wood and fabric um and it's pretty similar pretty similar cost uh, across the board for these light light ultralight aircraft uh, as far as cost goes uh, it's, i wouldn't say you need spend more than maybe 12 to 15,000 on materials and that's that's if you're buying buying it all piecemeal over a long period of time rather than bulk kits and and all at once i have a lot of friends that are into amateur home built and uh one of the things that they have is a community and i was wondering can you i mean is it the same community or can you compare it to that community the ultralight community uh it's pretty much the same community uh my 
my friend and I really try to stay included or stay involved in the EAA and uh, talk to other experimental builders. There, there's a little bit of a, oh, you're not a real pilot. You, you don't fly a real airplane thing because we do fly ultralights. But when, when people see them and realize that they're not just aluminum sticks with guy wires and uh, fabric over the over a, a wing and a little lawn chair, they they tend to realize that they have a bit of a um, misconception as to what ultralight air, uh, aircraft are, and they they're really, as is always true in the aviation community, friendly and uh, open to learning and interested. So, to speak on that topic, I think there's so I'll be honest. I've heard this even not just a few days ago. Is that people saying, hey, I'd never get into that. That's too dangerous. Um, how how do we, first of all, we have to prove that's a misconception. How do we do that? And um, what, in your opinion, as far as the difference between the ultralights and the, and the home belts, et cetera, I don't know if there's any stats on the site. I should look it up. Um, in your opinion, how would you deal with that, that different viewpoint amongst other pilots? Uh, well, I just, I really try to uh, communicate effectively while I'm in the air, uh, make sure that everyone sees where I am when I'm there. Um, I, I try to go to a lot of fly-in events if I can make it in my aircraft uh, and, and just show that they are safe aircraft and, and that we are safe pilots. Uh, it, we get a bad rep sometimes because we're not required to carry radios. We're not required to uh, really... Um, communicate the same way that certified pilots are but all of us do because it's the safe thing to do and it's uh it's courteous to others and that's the rules of flying it and if we wanted to fly anything else we'd need to communicate so why wouldn't we communicate uh properly otherwise well you know it, it just struck me that you know we've talked all about the rules and training and you know, costs and all this kind of stuff. But the thing we haven't actually covered is, is what is it like to fly one of these? I mean, I, I, I think it's gotta be just an amazing experience. Uh, you know, imagine you're, you're probably flying a lot lower than I fly usually. And well, you, you know, I usually have a, you know, some kind of a, at least a windshield or something I'm inside, you know, and isn't it? And a lot of the ultralights, you know, you're out in the wind. So, so kind of describe for us, if you would, you know, just, just the feelings of, of flying the ultralight way, I guess. I, you know, it's, it's really hard to describe. Uh, not, not because it's a difficult thing to describe going out and flying, but the, the fact that I can fly at 300 feet and not bother anybody because I basically have a lawnmower engine on the front. Uh, the fact that I am in an open cockpit, uh, and one of my aircraft only flies at 20 knots. Uh, it's a biplane hang glider that we stuck a, a little two-stroke engine on the back and put a lawn chair underneath. Um, <laughs> so that is one of those stereotypical ultralights that we own. But it, it's it's just it's a different connection with the aircraft, and and a, you just feel like you're supposed to be up there. At least that's that's how I feel, and I feel the same way in a certified aircraft. But I just I feel more connected to my environment, 
in an ultralight than I do uh, in a certified aircraft because there's there's less between me and the sky, and I'm not focused on all my instruments. I have I have the minimum required instruments for VFR flight: with attitude indicator, climb, uh, engine monitoring, and uh, uh, the, I mean that's really all you really need uh, in these aircraft. So. I imagine the view is pretty good too. <laughs> Not a whole lot of cockpit oh, yeah. in the way. Yeah. No. Uh, I still can't decide whether or not I like my my low wing versus the high wings that we have, but uh, I, I can tell you that uh, it doesn't matter which one I'm flying, I'm enjoying it. Well, we have that the low wing versus high wing argument also <laughs> in certified airplanes, <laughs> so so that's no different. It's good that there's some similarity there. Yeah, Russ, you know, it's also uh, the one cool thing about these, along with some of those, like the air camps, is the one thing we didn't talk about is the smells. I mean, you can actually, especially here in Florida, you get low enough, you're smelling citrus most of the day. Yeah, out here in Oklahoma, I'm not sure I want to smell some of the things that we'd be flying over. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that depends on your environment. (laughs) Yeah, but actually, that's that's a reasonable question, though. That kind of leads in. I mean, I I live in Oklahoma. You know, it it does get fairly windy here. You know, actually, the last couple of days have been pretty nice. But, but, yeah, wind is a normal... Uh, normal thing we deal with, you know, 15 knots of wind is, is fairly normal. So, uh, you know, if, if I got one of these, would I be flying or do you, do you have wind limits? And you said it's kind of, it's bumpier than, you know, than in a heavier airplane. I understand that. But what, what do you have as far as, as wind limits and other weather conditions go? Uh, well, there's not really anything in the manuals that says you can't fly in this much crosswind, but when you get blown around in a 200, 50 pound aircraft uh in fairly heavy crosswinds or some what would be light turbulence in a larger aircraft you tend to put different personal uh personal minimums on your flights <laughs> um i have landed in some pretty heavy crosswinds uh one of the airfields I, I fly out of gets pretty heavy crosswinds uh in the evenings when i had time to fly but uh, it, it was really a matter of just getting used to it and flying in the two seat with a friend who had more hours than me and, and really figuring out what the aircraft wants to do and, and how to handle it. But, I mean, you, you can fly as often as you want in as much, uh, but it, you still got to follow the VFR rules because that is, that is the, the one thing that is very strictly enforced with, with that is the, the flying rules. So, so Madison, one of the things that, you know, comes to mind is, you know, we're talking about safety and regulations is how about ramp checks? Are you prone to the ramp checks and how do you keep yourself out of trouble with the FA? I follow the rules and don't make anybody mad and nobody's going to check your aircraft. Um, Ramp checks aren't very common with part 103. Um, I've known maybe two people to ever get them. And one of them flew into a very busy towered aircraft with no radio communications. Uh, and, Oops. and that was what got in trouble. <laughs> he, I think he flew into uh, Portland airport in an ultralight with no radio communications and just landed there. Uh, then everyone got mad at him. They came out and went to talk to him and found out he was a ultralight aircraft let him take off again, and sent him a ticket in the mail. And that was, that was about the extent of, of his encounter. But 
I try to try to follow all the rules so I don't get people mad at me and phone calls from the FAA. So how do you do that? I mean, for instance, how do you get that knowledge of of the rules if you're not required to have a pilot certificate? How is there like a community that says, "Hey, let's all study together"? I uh, it's really down to um, personal dedication. Uh, I I went and I took a ground school uh, with a CFI. Uh, and uh, then I learned from my friend who had his rotor wing CFI as well. Um, so I, I, I took the initiative and, and I, I had to learn that all myself. Um, I'm sure you could find communities like student pilot forums. There's all kinds of people willing to study regulations with you. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be getting your, your pilot certificate to learn the rules. Do you think that's coming down the road? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not connected to that community yet, but has there been talk of that? Uh, most of the talk is, please don't get us in trouble and don't ask the FAA questions <laughs> right? so that we can stay in the area. <laughs> well, that's really important. That's for sure. So, so again, you know, you take a lot of this on yourself. Make sure you educate yourself. It, it's a great hobby. I mean, I have so many friends that, that absolutely love doing it. Uh, the only issue I kind of have is is weight wise. So let's talk a little bit about that. For some of us that are a little bit uh, girthier, I guess we should say, um, what <laughs> larger? <laughs> I like that word. But <laughs> so so I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback on that one. But uh, so how about someone who's a little bit bigger, like myself? Um, what are kind of some of the limits there, weight wise? Uh, you're going to have a tight squeeze in most of these aircraft. Um, but like the, the mini max that I fly has a gross weight of 560 pounds with an empty of 250. If you build it, uh, a little bit heavy, it, you, but, um, I mean, you, you've got about five gallons of fuel at six pounds. So you're using about 50 pounds of, of fuel, and so you got about 200 pounds of pilot that you can take. And if you build light or you get a little bit more powerful of an engine, you can get a little bit more gross weight. So it's doable. You'll just it'll be a tight squeeze for somebody who's who's a little bit wider and girthier, I would say. Well, thanks. Uh, so, <laughs> I, 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 this is more direct to me, but I tell you, I, I'm surprised at some of the people I see that uh, that do get in them, and they and you know some of these guys say, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's just uh, it's a little bit of tight squeeze, like you said. That's what I hear. You definitely won't be getting the hundred foot takeoff roll or the two hundred foot uh, landing roll with uh, <laughs> pushing max this, these aircraft though. But uh, but it is like I said, it's a lot of fun. The other thing too is that uh, you know when you're flying around in, in these different environments, uh, I've noticed that uh, you know some guys. We were talking a little offline about some of the aircraft and best way to, to sell an aircraft is to make it some funky color. Uh, do the people in the community, as far as trying to make their presence known, uh, what are the different methodologies such as painting the aircraft colors or using portable radios, etc. Oh, yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us have, um, uh, we have sent, uh, portable, we have ADSB in, so we can monitor traffic on our iPads. Uh, a lot of us have GPS, uh, spots so that other people can see, so we, other people can track our flights. Uh, we all carry portable radios, uh, at least everyone that I fly with in the ultralight community. And the, the majority of us 
have very brightly colored aircraft just so that we're very visible. Because uh, flying flying at 55 knots when everyone else is flying at double that or or at least 20 knots faster, you kind of have to be easily seen or someone's going to miss you and then, then you get close calls. So as far as that's concerned, uh, you know, uh, in general, you know, flying out there, knowing the rules and, and making sure that you're being a good neighbor, like you're saying, you know, communicate that type of thing. Uh, let's talk, uh, go back a little bit to the aircraft and then kind of wrap up here. The, the, the different type of aircraft that you can buy, you can build, uh, they come with both two-stroke, four-stroke engines. There's different limits and speed limits, et cetera, but it's a lot of fun. So just to summarize here uh, before I have a couple of last questions, you you can pick one of these up for a fairly inexpensive. I mean, you were talking like maybe the most expensive is it, uh, cost would be 10000 from building it and finishing it. Uh, but you're also your engine choices. I, I just want to clarify there the type of engines you can put in these and, and how you can save some money there or, uh, or actually, you know, what the different costs might be uh, between the different types of engines. So most of these fly with uh, Rotax uh, engines in them. Uh, 447 is pretty common. Uh, 503... Uh, a lot of people fly with half half Volkswagens or full Volkswagen engines. Uh, power the power range is anywhere between forty eight and seventy five horsepower. Uh, I've seen as much as eighty five with the full VW in uh, some of these uh, sixteen fifty Aeroses. Uh, you can you can put. Let's see if I can find the. So for someone like myself, I'd probably want to maybe put a larger engine in there, but that's also going to limit me on maximum weight uh, beca- yep. because of the fact that there are certain weight limits on these aircraft. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have to, if you want to put a, a larger, heavier engine in there, you will have to figure out how to make the rest of the aircraft lighter um, just so you don't exceed that 250 pounds. Uh, I'm not going to say that there aren't some overweight ultralights out there we call them fat ultralights uh i'm not going to say that they don't exist um but they they're not technically ultralights if, if you if you do go over that 250 pounds you you can put floats or a brs shoot on these and get a little bit extra weight allowance uh, i think floats gives you another 50 pounds and i think a brs gives you roughly the same uh but most of the weight of adding those two systems will uh, take up that extra weight limit that you are gaining by adding those systems. And to, and going back to the systems and and the limits, uh, and one of the re- the reasons FA limits this is for safety is the fact that you can't uh, fly more than a certain speed. Uh, it's I think it's fifty five knots, and the power off speed stall speed. Excuse me. Uh, can't exceed 24 knots, which, uh, you know, that's that's a, lo- a very low energy state uh, that you're going to be in uh, with these aircraft and also being low energy because you're, you're total gross weight. Uh, the other limiting factor, and I think we have to stress this, is this is more recreational flying. I know you talked about not burning much per hour, but uh, you're only li- you're limited to just a few gallons. I think it's like five gallons is the limit on that. Correct me if I'm wrong there. That's correct. Yeah, five gallons is the limit. Uh, so those two strokes that only burn two gallons an hour, you're still only getting about two and a half hours of flight time with 
your 30 minute reserve. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty recreationally limited. I, um, I do fly mine places, uh, but I have to plan a lot of fuel stops. So, <laughs> so those fuel stops, now you're stopping at airports, I'm assuming, or people's air, you know, airports, private airstrips, et cetera. Um, how do you manage that? How many manage the fuel? You just pull up to the pump at an airport? I, I tend to carry a empty fuel can, a uh, five can, five gallon jerry can with me, uh, and a, a little container of oil to premix because I, I run a two stroke, so I have to premix my oil with my gas. Uh, so I'll, I have to pick my my fuel stops based on places that carry uh, 91 octane clear uh, because they they these engines don't really like ethanol too much you can fly them with ethanol gas but it's recommended that you fly with uh with non-ethanol interesting that that's got to take some planning i would assume just trying to to make those stops make sure you can get somewhere that has the fuel you need um and uh and make sure they're open too (laughs) yeah yeah it, it takes a little bit of planning uh i i do a lot of googling before flights if i'm going somewhere that i haven't been very often or ever been before uh i if i can't find something or some place that carries 91 clear i i will run standard ethanol gas um but it, it i i wouldn't recommend it for long periods of time yeah interesting that and that's been an issue with the in the industry that's for sure um and it's uh you know another thing too by the way and this is just a you know because i hang around with a lot of guys who do airboats um usually when there's a community with airboats uh you usually can find uh some ethanol free uh gasoline there because some of them run on similar engines they're also 100 low lead i'm assuming uh can you put the 100 low lead in in many of these aircraft engines or no you can uh i i would recommend um running ethanol or i would i would recommend running clear gas through uh, ethanol free gas through every once in a while if you do run the 100 low lead just because the the lead deposits build up in these two strokes and uh can cause performance issues but um you can run them uh the manufacturers of all these engines say it's it's perfectly fine to do so um so i i definitely prefer running pump gas because it is much cheaper yeah yeah um and you know, Madison, this has been awesome. I, I'm kind of, I'm getting really interested in this. I don't think I've ever had this long of a conversation about Part 103 in in this this much depth. Uh, I, gosh, I I think people assume because we're pilots, we all know all, all these different rules. Uh, I am actually going to start focusing on that more at a lot of the different air shows and and really get involved with that community because there's other co-hosts here that have been involved with that. But I do know that the majority of the ones that I talk to are involved through the EAA, and that's a good resource. Is there any other recommendations that you would have as far as somebody who's interested in getting into Part 103 in ultralights? Uh, Facebook's a great resource. I, I know Internet should be taken with a grain of salt, um, but there are there are tons of ultralight communities on Facebook. Uh, there is the um, the uh, ultralight society that uh, I believe you linked in the show notes, uh, which is a great resource as well. Um, 
And that's the hey. United States Ultralight Association I put in there. Not That's not the World One, but it's the United States Ultralight Association. That's a great resource as well. Um, that they'll, they'll help you out if, uh, when you need help figuring things out with your aircraft or, or how to go about uh, getting what you need done with these. Um, the Facebook community is great. I, I've learned a lot through that, but also uh, finding local chapters. There's not very many ultralight chapters of the EAA, EAA but any, any chapter of the EAA has very knowledgeable people within it. The, even on certified aircraft, the same concepts apply. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of EAA members I know in different uh, chapters nearby me that fly old wooden aircraft with fabric skins that taught me a lot about repairs. So, right. Oh man, I tell you, the community there is amazing. I was actually just sitting with a bunch of people uh, talking about teaching and the shops, the workshops that they have at different air shows. I I learned something about fabric yesterday and was fascinated by these people who have been doing it for years. Uh, so there is so much information out there. And I like what you said about the Internet. Sometimes the best thing to do is get out there and talk to people that actually can show you how to do it. Uh, but uh, with that said, I do say that the, a lot of these pages are really good. Reach out to people, ask questions, uh, and, and don't be afraid to get out there and ask questions, especially at some of the uh, at some of the shows. I find sometimes that's a much more inviting environment. Uh, uh, than online because many times you know we get people kind of make comments and stuff like that about you know our lack of knowledge in a certain area but when you're at like the especially the EAA the Sun and Funds uh, you know Air Venture etc they are so open to questions and they are such a wonderful community there uh, but so I highly recommend you going out there and joining EAA just a wonderful community too Matt? also AOP I, I, I would recommend joining EAA and AOPA and just even as an ultralight pilot, I have both memberships and I take full advantage of them all. So, Well, Mass, I was going to ask you any other resources, but that's a great one. AOPA, I will put that link that in the, the show notes also. I think, uh, you know, bad on me that I forgot about the, mentioning them too, but uh, a great community, all these. Uh, so, you know, you got you got me inspired. I'm going to start doing more uh, interviews, especially at air shows of ultralights, and try to get to know them a little bit better. I know there's some websites out there that have some incredible uh, different uh, YouTube videos, etc., about uh, ultralights, and that's a great way to get involved. You talked about fa uh, social media. That's one. Uh, if you want to see what these look like, if it if it's appealing to you, you can do that on the internet, which is really cool. Uh, but uh, I really appreciate you coming here. Is there uh, anything else you want to talk about or anything else, any type of websites, AOPA, EAA, is there uh, anything? We'll, we'll put them all in the show notes, obviously, but uh, uh, as far as your concern, anything that we can go towards that you want to promote? I know you have another website and another uh, thing that you are doing and where they can find you. Oh, yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if my, my website and my uh, information was going to be relevant in this conversation, but they can find me at my Facebook page at contact or at remote AMT school. Um, I have a YouTube channel remote, uh, remote AMT as well. And uh, I'm reachable at contact at remote AMT uh, in case anyone is looking to get their AMP certificates. I do uh, do help people find the, the pathway to those, uh, those certificates and, uh, career coaching along the way to their first jobs on that so great uh thanks madison for that and i that's uh you know of course for coming out we really do want to promote what you're doing there but to find out more 
of course, go to the Remote AMT, and that's going to be online. I'll put that in the show notes, too. Uh, doing some great stuff out there uh, for the aviation community, for the folks that are uh, actually uh, transitioning from the military world to the civilian world. So uh, just want to put a shout-out to you for that one there. Uh, great having you on, Madison. I uh, Hopefully, if we do have questions, uh, contact at stuckmikeafcast.com. We'll send those questions along to you and possibly have you on again. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I'm always looking for excuses to talk to people about airplanes. Uh, and maybe next time we talk, I'll be stateside so you won't have to get up so early. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I get up early anyway. We, Russ and I were talking about that. Uh, so <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was no, no problem at all. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I think that's really important is that when you're looking at something new, say with ultralights and alls, you know, get knowledge. Uh, like Madison said, is, is look at the different resources online uh, and all these different organizations out there that can help you. And that's my challenge to you is, is to try to go out and learn more about 103. Even if you're not going to be flying an ultralight or part 103 and you just want to be part of that community and be able to speak with some knowledge, I challenge you to go out there and check that out. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to do is this. Uh, I think we're going to have to do a giveaway, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to give away one scholarships guide. Remember, the scholarships guide has a, over $120 million in scholarships for all different types of flying. It's not just for young folks, but even to add ratings. Uh, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to give away, and you have to go to our Facebook Facebook page for this answer. So go to uh, Stuck My Gavcast on Facebook and answer this question. Uh, how much did I weigh in my last medical? And I'm going to give you a hint. If if you look at the part 103 rules for powered aircraft, uh, you have to weigh it has to weigh an empty weight less than this amount. So the empty weight of the aircraft has to be less than this amount, and that is how much I weighed on my last FAA medical. I, I know this is I'm giving something away in my personal life, but I think it would be a lot of fun to do that. You have to answer that on our Facebook page, uh, Stuck Mike Avcast, and we'll give you a coupon for a free scholarships guide. You can use that, uh, that coupon, by the way, or you can give it to uh, anybody you want. Uh, so if you're not interested in a scholarship, please do give that away. Uh, but uh, anyway, we really do appreciate you. Uh, Madison, thank you again. And Russ, thanks for, for coming on this early in the morning. I know it was kind of kind of interesting getting up this early, uh, but uh, but it was just wonderful learning so much about ultralights and, uh, and also Part 103 flying. Uh, well, folks, I really appreciate you listening. And don't forget to go out and check out our Facebook page. If you have questions, that's a great place to ask. Also for this uh, contest to win a scholarships guide. And I really, you know, I, I want to challenge you to do this. Uh, it's just when this turns off, you know, don't stop there. Try to, try to find some more information about the Part 103 and the ultralight flying. Maybe start envisioning somebody that you know that might be interested in Part 103 and ultralight. And with this... Give this information to them and be part of that community because, you know, the more you can learn about flying, the more it'll help you in your flying life. Well, folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying out there. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.